Praise Jesus. Today we're going to hear from Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Thanks, Forrest. Don't you want to read some more? That was pretty short. (laughs) Okay. This age in which we live has been called the age of anxiety by a number of different authors. And there's no doubt that today people struggle deeply with anxiety. The anti-anxiety drug Alprazolam, better known by its brand name Xanax, is the most commonly prescribed psychiatric drug. In 2013, 48.5 million prescriptions were written. And nine of the top ten psychiatric drugs are commonly prescribed for anxiety. As life has gotten more complex, more choices, more to face, with the information we can get constantly of what's going on in the world, it increases our anxiety. We feel a greater sense of anxiety about what is happening and what might happen. Francis O'Gorman writes this, The birth of worry, O'Gorman writes, is the moment of a culture shift from unquestioning faith in omnipotent powers to thought or reasoning as the way of understanding human existence within the world. Worry is only possible in a world of choice. It's even more possible when human beings think in turn that they have the capacity, let alone the right, to choose for themselves. What O'Gorman is saying is that We live in a world in which, as we continue to feel like it's up to us to decide, to make choices, to figure out how to function in this world, and we depend on ourselves and we think our reasoning can figure all this out, what it ends up doing is increasing our anxiety because there's too many choices and we don't, deep down, have the resources to make these kinds of decisions well, and we know that. And our culture encourages anxiety. I don't know if you've noticed that. The advertisers love for you to be anxious. Because if you are anxious about your life, then you'll buy more medications, more cars, more beer, more whatever it is. And the media itself would love to have you be churned up and anxious and fearful. Because then you'll watch more TV, you'll want to numb yourself more, or you'll want to know more information so you keep on top of things, so you aren't blindsided by what's coming at you in life. But I don't think anxiety is a new phenomenon. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament historian, went to a conference recently and heard him speak, and he described how from the very beginning, 
in the fallenness of man as we've tried to make ourselves to be God, to take that position. What it has done is it's created two things in our culture, according to Brueggemann. One is greed. I need more. And number two, anxiety, because I'm not sure I can get what I need to make life work. So if we refuse to depend on the Lord as the one who was providing for us, then it's up to us. And that's created tremendous anxiety in our culture. Think about early man and what it must have been like for him as he's in growing his crops and he wants more rain because he needs it. If there's a drought, and so he's trying to figure out, how do I control my life? He gets anxious and upset and concerned, so he's got to figure out how to get on the God's good side. Do I do more sacrifices? Do I burn more incense? Do I have more idols on my mantle? What do I do? But today we're not any different. We're trying to figure out how to make life work and how to control our lives and protect our lives so we can get by in life. But the problem is we never know if we've done enough. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to live differently, right? Scriptures are very clear about that. We are not to get caught up in that world system. We are to live counterculturally. Over and over again in the scriptures, it says, be not afraid. Over 57 times that command is given throughout the scriptures, in addition to other commands like, do not be anxious. Don't worry, etc. But I guess the question for you and me today is we're gathered here looking at this passage together is how do we really do that? How do we avoid getting caught up in the worry of the world where it drags us down and keeps us from functioning as the people of God counterculturally in this world? Well, in this little psalm, three verses... Psalm 131, King David, I think, helps us understand what that looks like. Now, remember, King David was a man of action. He was a fighter. He defeated many armies. He was a general, a warrior. He had many responsibilities as king of Israel. And yet, he was a man after God's own heart. And he learned how to have a soul at rest in God. May we learn that same lesson through this psalm today. Pray with me. Lord, as we come together as your people looking at this passage, may you speak to us. We confess that we are way too often caught up in the anxieties of the world, and we're driven to try to somehow control and handle it ourselves. But Lord, may we learn through this psalm to rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just to set this context, we're nearing the end of our summer series of the Psalms of Ascent. These 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, our journey up to Jerusalem. These Psalms were sung on the way up to Jerusalem to worship for the three great feasts of the year. And I think the psalmists or the people of Israel sang this psalm to remind themselves as they're getting near Jerusalem now, where their soul can find rest in the midst of a difficult journey and an anxiety-ridden world. But before we dig into the psalm, I want to invite a friend up and his family 
Dwayne Nolan and Lisa and Brian are going to come up and share a little bit of their journey, how they are learning to find rest in the midst of a very difficult world. Come on up, Dwayne. Be not afraid. Today is a great service. Um, Who are we? My name is Lisa Nolan. This is my husband, Dwayne Nolan. Our 19-year-old son, Brian Nolan, was with us at the first service, but he snuck out, and he's late getting back, so (laughs) he's not here. Uh, We've been with Cole for 30 years. We've been married for 26 wonderful years, and one of the pastors here at Cole actually married us 26 years ago. We come to the first service. We sit right over there in the front row, always, <laughs> if you ever want to know where we are. Um, Dwayne has sung in the choir. We've taught Sunday school for several years being here at Cole, and we greet one Sunday at the um, front door. So that's who we are, and uh, we have a story to tell you. Our story starts in March of 2013. We were happily ending up our li- living our lives and ended up at St. Al's one night. I thought I had a heart attack. Went through all kinds of tests. They didn't find anything wrong with my heart, my cardiovascular system. But as we were leaving, they said something didn't look right on a, on a chest X-ray. Could it have been just a smudge on the film, but we need to some more tests. So they sent me over for CAT scan. The next morning, we met with Dr. David Sim, the cardiologist, to go over the results of all that we'd done. And uh, while we were there, the, uh, he got a fax with the information that they had found what appeared to be malignancies in my body. And David was the one that, that broke it to us. We didn't know him. We'd met him the day before at St. Al's. But he had to break the news that you're probably facing a fight with cancer. As we were leaving... Uh, David's standing at the door, and I, I head out, and he kind of held his hand out like he's going to shake my hand. I stuck my hand out, and he put his arm around my shoulder. He drew me in and closed, and he said, Dwayne, are you a friend of Jesus? I said, yes, I am. He said, Lisa, let's just take this to him. And he prayed with us. Uh, you meet God's people in strange places. God puts them there for a reason. And needless to say, that wasn't the ending of everything. Uh, we went through several of the tests and what have you. Uh, found out very shortly that I had stage 4 cancer. In July of that year, we went to OHSU, and I had 43 tumors removed from my liver. They removed my gallbladder, all kinds of good stuff. Went back in October, and they removed most of my right lung. But since then, I've been cancer-free. I go in every month for my monthly treatments, my quarterly labs, and on all as well. Continued that way until July of this year. One for the labs, usually get the labs first and then go get my treatment. They didn't call me in for the treatment. It took about an hour and a half, and finally the nurse comes out and calls me back. And the doctor said, uh, we got some results in your labs don't look good. We need to do some other tests. Um, went back in the next day, and we were told that uh, my liver is fully involved. There's no surgical treatment. It won't respond to, to radiation. And... Uh, as of July, they were giving me three to six months to live. Uh, however, they did say there is a new chemo drug out, just got approved, that if you can tolerate it, uh, may give you up to a year. Um, so we started that. And uh, needless to say, God wasn't paying much attention to our plans. I had just retired in March, uh, and Lisa and I were making long-term plans. 
uh, that went way beyond six months, way beyond a year. Uh, most of my family has lived a long time. My grandparents, my grandfather, we almost celebrated his 104th birthday. My parents lived in the late 90s, and I was looking forward to celebrating my 100th. Um, but we've had to face a new reality. Surprisingly, this hasn't been hard to do. Uh, my real heartache, obviously, is having to leave Lisa and Brian behind without me. When I was told of the chemo, they told me that my insurance would approve it, and if I could tolerate it, I might have a year. Well, the insurance approved it, and uh, I'm working really hard to, to tolerate it at this point in time. But we've been just amazed at how God has been able to quiet and still our souls, knowing that God is in charge and that he loves me and wants what's best for me and my family is of great comfort, and I'm truly at peace. And as, as uh, Jackson was speaking in the first service, this hymn just started repeating itself in my head. There's a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. There's a place of comfort sweet near to the heart of God, a place where we are a Savior meet near to the heart of God. There's a place of full release near to the heart of God, a place where all is joy and peace near to the heart of God. O Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us to wait before you near to the heart of God. I've really been able to identify with Paul's letter to the Philippians, particularly chapter 4. Um, I'm not in need. We're not in need. We've learned to be content in each and every circumstance. And we can do everything through him that gives us strength. We can truly rest in the knowledge that we are in his arms. And all of my days were ordained before I was born. We're truly trusting the Lord in every circumstance. And a quote from Corey Ten Boone comes to mind. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You just sit still and trust the engineer. <laughs> I'm, I'm truly grateful uh, to have had the opportunity to observe and be blessed as I've watched others follow this path. Three that come to mind immediately are, are Jack DeWolf, Kevin O'Neill, and, and Bruce Rigger. As we travel this path, I become very aware of how much harder the emotional journey really is on the loved ones and the caregivers than it is on the patient. Lisa and Brian are the ones that are going to be left alone without a husband or father in this world. And I appreciate the cards and well wishes that I receive, but can't help feel that Lisa's being slighted because we're truly traveling this road together. There have been those close to me my family, uh, that have given me a feeling kind of like Job must have felt with his friends when they were trying to encourage him. Uh, they're well-meaning in their actions and words, and they want to assure me that this uh, foul disease is of the devil. And I just need to renounce the prognosis, denounce the fallacy of the diagnosis, command the devil and his foul disease to leave my body and claim healing in the name of Jesus. I've been told that I'm just giving up and giving in to Satan if I accept the diagnosis and prepare to die. My wife's been told that the problem is in her prayers because she allows negative words to be used instead of claiming God's promises with only positive words of affirmation.
That kind of theology isn't helpful. It's hurtful. I thank God for the Bible-based teaching that we have here every single week. No pie-in-the-sky claims that aren't scriptural. Just the simple scripture and the news of God's loving us and his desire for a relationship with us. He loves us deeply deeply, and wants us to know him intimately and wants us to trust him. Needless to say, our God has been our strength through this entire journey. We've had the support of the staff and elders here at Cole, as well as the prayers and support of friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. I've had great support, particularly from the Thursday morning men's Bible study guys. This is a group of men who not only want to get closer to God, but they want to love their wives and families better. We're all learning to get past the macho facade that pervades most men's organizations and really getting to know one another, bear one another's burdens, and really be there for each other. I know that when I walk into this group or see one of these guys on the street that I have a true friend who cares about me. If there's any of you men looking for a place to plug in who will be accepted and loved, come on out on Thursday mornings. We'll feed you breakfast, and you'll get some great fellowship and teaching. As Lisa and I move forward, our biggest question is regarding the timetable. It's left for us with a lot of unknowns. The doc says, if you got things you want to do, do them sooner rather than later. We want to spend more time together. We want to enjoy each other. But we're truly at peace with the eventual outcome. And we just continue to ask for guidance and wisdom as we make decisions regarding Lisa's employment and her time off, things like that. But God is good. Life's good, and every day is a good day. Even if, uh, as my friend Steve says, some days are gooder than others. We appreciate the continued prayers of our church family and concern of friends, but we are truly resting in the loving arms of the Father, enjoying his blessings, knowing that we are his, and that he truly cares for us. Thank you. Thank you, brother. I love you guys. Well, thank you, Dwayne and Lisa. And, you know, that hearing their story is just a reminder to us that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, are the only ones who truly have a way to deal with the anxieties of life. Now, don't hear me say that, you know, I understand if, if one in six people in America is on Xanax <laughs> or something related, um, Many of you are, and I understand that, and there are medical reasons to deal with anxiety with medication. So I'm not saying throw your medication away, but I am saying I think all of us, myself included, can do far better in dealing with the anxieties of life in this world by learning to rest, as Duane talked about, in a relationship with God and in his love for us, to really, really understand that we are near to the heart of God, that he holds us in his hands. King David found a place of true rest. So let's look at some qualities. I want to highlight just four qualities from this little psalm to help us understand what it looks like to find a place of rest in the midst of a crazy world. The first quality I see is humility. Notice how he begins the psalm. O oh Lord, my heart's not lifted up. 
My eyes are not raised too high. That exact same phrasing, a heart being exalted or lifted up, has this idea of being proud, of being self-dependent. It's used in Ezekiel chapter 28 of the king of Tyre, where it describes the king of Tyre saying to God, I will be like God. My heart is lifted up. Ezekiel 28, verse 2. You see, that's the issue, I think, that creates anxiety, is we begin to take the place of God. We begin to think it depends on us that somehow we've got to work out the issues of life. We feel responsible to run our own lives and somehow come up with the answers and the decisions. And if we do that, if we take God's place, we will experience anxiety because we are not God. We do not have the resources to handle even our own lives, much less anybody else's. And he uses this next phrase, my eyes are not haughty. My eyes are not lifted up. This same phrase, again, is used in Isaiah chapter 10 to describe the king of Assyria, who believes that he's in control of life. He's dominated other nations, and he believes he, again, is like God, that he can control what happens in life. Needless to say, both the king of Tyre and the king of Assyria were quickly destroyed by God. You see, such an attitude of self-dependence, it relies on me, I will be like God, will always lead to anxiety because we don't have what it takes. But David has a deep humility where he says, I'm not even lifting my eyes high. I'm not looking down on other people. I'm not raising myself above anybody else. I'm not going to live there. My heart is not exalted. I've put my place in proper order to God himself. God, you are infinite. You are awesome. You see, when we look at God and understand who we are in relation to, to him, we will have this attitude of utter, complete humility. It doesn't depend on me. You are God and I am not, so I can rest in your power, in your strength, in your plan, and in your love. I don't have what it takes, and that's okay. So humility. Secondly, the quality we see in King David is simplicity. Simplicity. Where in the rest of verse 1 he says, I don't occupy myself with great things or marvelous things. Literally, it's I don't walk in these things. I don't step into situations that are too big for me. I don't try to play God. I don't try to figure everything out or control life. He said, I've learned to kind of wait on God to work. This goes against our normal response to anxiety, right? When you start feeling anxious, you start feeling like, I I need to do something. I need to control something. I need to make something happen. I need to somehow work or understand or scramble to figure this out. But he says, I don't do that. I don't even occupy myself with things that are hard to figure out. We think I just need to find a way to deal with my cancer or 
find some alternative thing or do this or do that. Or maybe I can avoid cancer or difficulty if I just exercise enough or eat right or do this or do that. And the truth is, those are not bad things, but they cannot guarantee for us that we will not experience the difficulties of life that Duane and others among you have experienced. We can't figure it all out. We can't figure out the what's and the why's. And yet we want to. We try to. We think if, if I can just figure out what's going on and really understand the world, then I won't get blindsided by the difficulties of life. But when we live that way and take it into our own hands that way, we will inevitably end up full of anxiety because we know ultimately deep down we cannot figure out it does not work. We are finite. We are limited. We are not God. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And we are not. When we begin to think, I've got to somehow find the power to control this, I've got to figure this out, then we've stepped into God's role and we end up anxious and afraid. But David is not doing that. He says, I, I, don't, even, I, I don't even go there. I don't walk in that. I don't try to figure it all out. I've learned instead, he says, to quiet my soul. And that's the third characteristic we see of a heart at rest, a, a heart that's at trust, trusting. David puts it this way. I've calmed and quieted my soul. Now, that's a very active thing, right? We, we tend to just feel like our souls, whatever happens, whatever hits us emotionally, that just is. But, but David is taking control in one area, and that's in his soul. He says, I've leveled out, literally, I've leveled out and I have silenced my soul. You know what happens when you start getting anxious, right? You're concerned about the future and, you're, and inwardly your mind just starts racing. And you start trying to figure it all out. And David says, when that begins to happen, what I do is I level out my mind. And I silence my soul. What he's, what he's saying is I tell my soul when you start, yeah, but what about, and what about, and well, you got to figure out. He says, I tell my soul, shut up. We need to be pretty abrupt with our own souls sometimes. Where they start racing and going on and on. And he says, no, I, I, I silence it. Silence, be quiet. Shh. Let's find a place of rest, he says. Where he's calmed himself. You see, the real battle for your soul being at rest is in your soul. It's in what you say to yourself and what you choose to focus on. And David says, I will not try to figure all that out. And David went through a lot of anxious things. Rebellion among his own family and, and his own sin he had to deal with and all kinds of things. And yet where he, where he goes is, no, I silence all, all of that. And I've come to a place that he describes this way. Like a weaned child with its mother. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This picture that you see is one, it's a painting by Mary Cassette. She painted it in 1890, American Impressionist. But I really like this image because I think it captures what David's getting at here. This idea of a weaned child. 
you'll notice the child is completely relaxed. Its eyes are half open. Its head is leaning back on its mother. Its, its hand is reaching up and feeling her face, just the, the comfort and the encouragement of that. The other hand is resting on her arm. There's a place of absolute peace, I think, in this picture. Nothing frantic, nothing anxious, but at rest. And David says, that's what I've done to my soul. I brought my soul to a place of like a weaned child leaning against its mother, hearing the very heartbeat of the mother and feeling the mother's love. He says, that's what I've done with God. I've leaned back on God and heard his very heartbeat of love for me. Now let's contrast this a little bit. Why did David use a weaned child? Well, think about a baby. What's a baby like? I need my needs met now. <laughs> if I'm hungry, I'm going to scream. If I'm messy, I'm going to scream. If I'm tired, I'm going to scream. It's all about getting my needs met now. And I'm not sure you're going to be there for me. So I better make, I better get your attention. Or think about a teen, teenager. <laughs> like, I don't want you in my life. I'm learning to be independent. I want to run my own life. Don't tell me what to do. I'm smarter than you. Or an adult who has come to a place of saying, yeah, it depends on me. I've got to make it happen. We lose that sense of dependence in adulthood. So I think the reason David uses a weaned child is because a weaned child is in a very unique place. Psychological theory today likes to talk about attachment or bonding. That a child needs to reach this place of feeling fully at ease in his mother or his or her mother's love. See, I think a weaned child is one that through that period of nursing and now is old enough where they're not so full of themselves as a later child, a teen, and trying to be independent, but they've learned to be attached, to be bonded, to know that they will be cared for, and therefore they're completely relaxed and at ease in their mother's arms. My question for us is, which are we? Are we like the baby? <laughs> God, I need you to do this now! And if you don't, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> or are we like a, a young teenager? Oh, I can handle it, God. You know, let me, let me run it myself. I'll run my own life. Or an adult that just at times doesn't even feel like he needs God. But a weaned child is trusting in the care and love of his or her mother. I'm sort of struck by the selfie craze. You know, everybody's got to take a selfie and then post it on all of the social media so that everybody can see. Um, now, I, I realize this isn't always the case, but I think often the case. These are people who are unattached, unbonded, and they're crying out for somebody to notice me. Please take me into account. Please see me. You see, they haven't learned to rest in the loving arms of their heavenly Father, to hear his heartbeat of love for them.
want to speak to the men for a moment here because often this kind of image doesn't feel manly. You know, we, we as men um, are, need to prove ourselves and we need to be strong and self-dependent and take care of our families and take care of ourselves. And, and we're driven by our world to feel like I need to be able to handle life as a man. That's what the world says. But think about it. This is King David writing this psalm. And what King David is saying, true manhood is at the center of your soul, being fully at rest in your father's arms, knowing he loves you. True manhood is rejecting self-sufficiency. Be quiet, my soul. (laughs) I don't want to go there. And learning to rest deeply in your father's love. And who is the greatest example but Jesus? Jesus was a true man, and yet he exhibited that complete dependence on the Father's love that's expressed in this psalm. And for you women, I I think of 1 Peter 3 when I read this. And 1 Peter 3 talks about being in a difficult marriage as a wife. And it says, rather than give way to fear, it says, develop a gentle and quiet spirit. The center of your being, a spirit at rest, knowing that God loves you. For us as men and women, I think that at the core of our being is what leads to a freedom from the anxiety that the world throws at us. The fourth quality is given in verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Resting in the Lord like this picture doesn't mean just resting for now, but it means resting for the future. Hope in the Lord now and forevermore. Recognizing that the future's in his hands as well. And I don't need to be anxious about it. I can give that to him. I can silence my soul and say, I'm going to focus on his loving care for me. And as we make that choice to change our focus and depend on him, our soul can find a place at rest. See, this is something I think we all struggle with, right? It's a difficult world we live in. I certainly do. I recently had some vacation time, just came back. But first few days of vacation, I realized, you know what? I've taken way too much on. And I found that I was getting burned out. And I needed that break to begin to get perspective and to go back into my father's arms. We all need that to be regularly part of our lives. So where can we go to find this? Well, it's got to be a regular part of our time with the Lord, right? Too often, I think, we're like a child sitting on its parent's lap and we're just straining to get off. i got to go do something. You know, come on, let me go. (laughs) Instead of learning to lay back and say, there has to be a place in our lives, daily, regularly, where we learn to say, no, at the core of my being, is God's love for me, what he has done for me, what he is doing for me, and how he holds the future in his hands. We've got to speak to our souls, brothers and sisters, and say, shh, be quiet. You see, if, if this isn't the center of our being as men and women, then the wheel is going to wobble. 
It's going to be out of whack, and we will experience anxiety. But if this is at the core, the center of who we are and our identity in Christ, His love for us, then the wheel will move. And yes, you have to make decisions. You have to make choices. We have to live life. I get that. But what is at the center of your being? If it's this, then you will find a place of peace in the midst of an anxious, busy, crazy life. Rod Dreher talks about losing his sister. And he talked to the doctor. And he said, what's the significance of her dying such a terrible death? And the doctor said that the American dream is a lie. The pursuit of happiness doesn't create happiness. You can't work hard enough to defeat cancer. You can't make enough money to save your own life. When you understand that life is really about understanding what our true condition is, how much we need other people, and how much we need a Savior, then you'll be wise. You see, I think that is a heart of rest, a heart that's learned to rest in his glorious, wondrous love. Let's pray. Lord, I think of the journey that you have each of us on as we're learning to walk with you and Duane and Lisa and Brian in particular, but for all of us. It's so easy, Lord, to buy into the world system and begin to feel anxious and let that control us. But Lord, thank you for this beautiful psalm and this beautiful picture of a heart at rest. May we be people who, by the power of your spirit, learn to say no, be quiet to our frantic souls and learn to go back and rest in the loving arms of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.